bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, March 15, 2016. Yesterday marked 13 years since the CDFI Fund announced the first round of new markets tax credit allocations. On March 14, 2003, $2.5 billion of new markets tax credit authority was awarded to 66 community development entities. That first round represented a combination of allocation authorized for the first two years of the program. Since then, the New Market Tax Credit has become one of the most successful community development programs in the nation. In December, Congress extended the program for five years at $3.5 billion annually through 2019. Moving on to this week's podcast, we'll start off with the general news section, where I have an update for you on the presidential primaries. Then, I'll cover what some Congress members are doing to promote funding for certain housing and economic development programs. In our low-income housing tax rate section, I'll discuss what one coalition of affordable housing investors had to say about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac resuming low-income housing tax credit investments. I'll also talk about HUD's efforts to streamline administration of its multifamily programs. After that, I'll have a quick reminder about an upcoming Real Estate Assessment Center, or REAC, deadline. In New Markets Tax Credit News, I'll share highlights from a speech delivered last week by CDFI Fund Director Annie Donovan and what she outlined as a framework for the future of CDFIs. Next, I'll share how much funding will be available for the fiscal year 2016 round of the Capital Magnet Fund. In our Historic Tax Credit section, I have details for you on the long-awaited Senate version of the Historic Tax Credit Improvement Act of 2015. I'll compare and contrast the Senate bill with the House version that was introduced last October. In state-level news, I'll summarize two new Alabama bills that were introduced to extend the State Historic Tax Credit Program. And we'll close out with Renewable Energy Tax Credit news, where I'll discuss one U.S. Senator's proposal to extend the Renewable Energy Investment Tax Credit through the year 2025. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, today is a big day in the presidential primary race. Today is when the Republican Party allows states to award their delegates on a winner-takes-all basis. It's a day when the leading candidates can further assert their dominance or other contenders can close the gap. Today, five states will hold their contests. Florida, Illinois, Missouri, North Carolina, and Ohio. The biggest Republican prizes are winner-takes-all Florida and Ohio. The statewide winner in Florida gets 99 delegates, and the statewide winner in Ohio gets 66. The Northern Marianas also have nine delegates that will go to the top vote-getter. Not all of the Republican states are statewide winner-take-all. There are 69 delegates in Illinois and 52 Missouri that award delegates on a blend of winner-takes-all statewide and winner-takes-all by congressional district. Also, 72 delegates are available in North Carolina, and those delegates are awarded on a proportionate basis. 
Now remember, to cleanse the Republican nomination, a candidate needs at least 1,237 delegates. Going into today's races, Donald Trump is still on top of the Republican field with 460 delegates, this according to the Associated Press. The Associated Press also reports that Ted Cruz has 370, Marco Rubio 163, and John Kasich has 63 delegates. Those are the GOP standings after this past Saturday's races in Washington, D.C. and Wyoming. In the Washington, D.C. caucus, Rubio won 10 of the 19 delegates, and Kasich won the other nine. In the Wyoming caucus, Cruz won two-thirds of votes and walked away with nine delegates. Rubio and Trump were awarded one Wyoming delegate each. Cruz also picked up a delegate from Guam this weekend, but the rest of Guam's five delegates remain uncommitted for now. After today, more than half of the total pledged GOP delegates will have been awarded in primary contests. On the Democratic side, 2,383 delegates are needed to clinch the nomination. Hillary Clinton continues to lead Bernie Sanders. Clinton won the Northern Mariana Islands' first-ever caucus on Saturday, which was the only Democratic contest this weekend. Clinton picked up four delegates, and Sanders earned two. Clinton now has 1,231 delegates, including superdelegates. Sanders has 576. States awarding Democratic delegates today will award them on a proportional basis. For the Democratic contests, Florida has 214 delegates, Illinois 156, Ohio has 143, North Carolina has 107, and Missouri has 71. Check out our notes from Novogratic blog for profiles on the use of tax credits in each primary state. In other news, Several Congress members are throwing their support behind funding for crucial housing and community development programs. The House Budget Committee is planning to consider its fiscal year 2017 budget resolution this week, but the lack of agreement on specifics may derail the committee consideration. Stay tuned and follow me on Twitter to get the most current update. If it does go forward, we expect the resolution to start with the top-line numbers as approved by the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2015. But the committee will probably consider an amendment to find $30 billion to $40 billion in savings. If the House can get a budget resolution passed, it will accelerate the consideration of annual spending bills and increase the chance that Congress will consider them by regular order. And so, Congress members circulated their colleague sign-on letters to support fiscal year 2017 funding levels for certain programs. One of the sign-on letters was led by Representative Gerald Nadler of New York. Nadler's letter requests $20.9 billion for the tenant-based rental assistance program in fiscal year 2017. The funding request would cover $18.4 billion to renew all current vouchers, and an additional $88 million would go to 10,000 new vouchers for the homeless. In the letter they co-authored, Senators Jeff Merkley of Oregon and Kirsten Gillibrand of New York echoed the call for funding Section 8 tenant-based rental assistance. Another housing initiative that saw a show of support was the Home Investment Partnership Program. Senators Chris Coons of Delaware and Patrick Leahy of Vermont were lead signatories on a letter requesting $1.2 billion for home in fiscal year 2017. Home funding has experienced severe cuts in the past few years, dropping from $1.8 billion in 2010 
to $950 million in 2016. Coons and Leahy, in their letter, describe the importance of restoring home funding. The home program has created more than 1.2 million affordable homes and provided direct rental assistance to more than 270,000 low-income families, all since 1992. Representative Marsha Fudge of Ohio circulated a similar letter to colleagues in the House asking for home funding to be restored. Senator Leahy also circulated a letter requesting $3.3 billion for the Community Development Block Grant Program. Senator Leahy called the CDBG program one of the most effective federal domestic programs to revitalize communities. Over the past 40 years, the CDBG program has invested more than $149 billion in low- and moderate-income communities nationwide. CDBG investments have helped more than 1.2 million households buy and rehabilitate their homes. As the appropriations subcommittees consider funding levels for specific programs, it's important to underscore the significance of funding, housing, and community development initiatives. In low-income housing tax credit news, the Affordable Housing Investors Council, or AHIC, said in a letter this month that it does not support Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac resuming investments in the low-income housing tax credit. AHIC submitted the letter in response to the Federal Housing Finance Agencies, or FHFA, their request for comments on Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's duty to underserve markets. As you know, AHIC is a group of 55 corporations engaged in investing in affordable housing properties that qualify for the LIHTC. AHIC said it does not see a public policy purpose for government-supported institutions to compete with private corporations in a robust market with limited supply. AHIC says the LIHTC program is successful in part because of the involvement of private investors imposing market discipline on the development of affordable housing. And AHIC says the private sector assumes the risk, not the federal government. Investment by government-sponsored enterprises runs counter to the strength of the local housing tax credit program, according to AHIC. If Fannie and Freddie were to begin investing at this time, AHIC says, it would crowd out the non-bank economic investors. Finally, when addressing whether the FHFA should allow the enterprises to act as guarantors of equity investments, in development by third parties, AHIC said that the market for guaranteed investments is minimal. It said it expects the offering of guarantees by the enterprises, Fannie and Freddie, would have a very limited impact. Now, AHIC does, in the letter, show support for the role that Fannie and Freddie play in multifamily affordable housing lending. AHIC's comment letter stands in contrast to the comment letter on the same questions submitted by Fannie Mae. Fannie Mae argued it should be able to re-enter the low-income housing tax credit investment market, both as an equity investor and as a guarantor. Several LIHTC industry participants, including the LIHTC Working Group, are expected to provide comment letters on the proposal. These comment letters are due by this Thursday. We'll share some of these additional comments in future podcasts. If you want to read AHIC's response, go to www.taxcredithousing.com. In affordable housing news, HUD posted a set of streamlined regulations on its website for most programs administered by its Office of Multifamily Housing Programs. The new final rule includes several changes with the idea of providing greater flexibility for agencies that administer HUD's rental assistance programs. This was published in the Federal Register and will become effective April 9th. The changes 
affects such things as the rent determination process, verification of social security numbers for children of applicants, how often utility reimbursements are made, the verification of assets and community service completion, how grievance procedures are handled, how often units are inspected, and utility payment schedules. Now, Susan Wilson, my partner in our Austin office, notes that this is a significant event. This is a notable effort by HUD to systematically streamline its programs. And Susan says changes like this will reduce the red tape that often discourages agencies from participating in HUD programs. She said any step that increases the efficiency in oversight for agencies is helpful. And she says this provides reason for optimism that HUD will continue to add flexibility and streamline the process for participating agencies. If you have any questions about the final rule or anything else concerning a HUD-assisted multifamily property, contact my partner, Susan Wilson. And while we're on the subject of HUD, I have a quick reminder. Because of leap year, the deadline for Real Estate Assessment Center or REAC submissions for the calendar year December 31, 2015 is March 30th not March 31st. Once again, the due date is March 30th. Now, the 10-day unofficial grace period is expected to end April 9th. Contact a Novigrad partner in an office near you for more details. In New Markets Tax Credit news, CDFI Fund Director Annie Donovan last week highlighted her organization's principles for the years to come. The CDFI Fund, of course, administers the New Market Tax Credit program. Donovan talked about what the CDFI fund accomplished over the past year, but she also laid out the key points to what is called the framework for the future during a keynote address to the CDFI Coalition Institute in Washington, D.C. The CDFI fund released its annual report, which included the framework for the future. The framework includes five principles. First, increasing the impact of the CDFI fund network by supporting the growth reach, and performance of CDFIs and CDEs. Second, fostering a diversity of CDFI and CDE activities and geographies while holding certified CDFIs and CDEs to high standards of integrity. Third, building the capacity of the CDFI fund and its network to capture, produce, and use data to improve decision-making, performance, and accountability. Fourth, easing the customer experience and creating on-ramps for new and emerging CDFIs and CDEs to access CDFI fund programs. And fifth, promoting awareness of CDFIs in order to expand their access to new resources. You can read more about the CDFI fund's accomplishments in 2015 and see more about the framework for the future at www.newmarketscredits.com. In other news, the CDFI fund announced there will be $93 million available in awards under the fiscal year 2016 round of the Capital Magnet Fund. The CDFI Fund awards competitive grants to CDFIs and qualified nonprofit housing organizations to finance affordable housing, economic development activities, and community service facilities. Now, there are two deadlines to apply for Capital Magnet Fund grants. The first deadline is March 16th, that's this Wednesday, for submitting the SF. 424 application for federal assistance through grants.gov. And the second deadline is March 30th to submit the rest of the application materials through CDFI Funds Awards Management Information System, or AMIS. 
I should note that the CDFI fund will only consider applications completed if they are filed in both Grants.gov and Amos. In historic tax credit news, Senators Ben Cardin and Susan Collins introduced a bill last week that would expand and amend the federal historic tax credit. If enacted, the legislation would increase the historic tax credit percentage from 20% to 30% for certain small projects. Supporters of the bill say that this would encourage more development in rural areas. The historic tax credit could be certified for certain small projects, which would allow direct sales of the credit. Now, the legislation would also make it easier for certain projects to qualify for the credit by lowering the rehabilitation expenditures threshold from 100% to 50% of adjusted basis. In addition, the bill would reduce the depreciable basis adjustment for claiming the historic tax credit from 100% to 50% of the credit. The proposal would also eliminate any current federal income taxation of proceeds received from the sale or allocation of state historic tax credits. Certain tax of use property rules would also be relaxed. Overall, the proposed changes would modernize the historic tax credit and make buildings more buildings eligible for the credit. Now, the bill is entitled the Historic Tax Credit Improvement Act of 2015, Senate Bill 2655. Similar legislation was introduced in the House last October, and the main difference is that the House bill includes a provision that would allow functionally related buildings to be treated as separate properties. The Senate bill does not include that provision. You can read more about the bills on my Notes from Novogratic blog. In state news, two bills were introduced to extend Alabama's state historic tax credit. The program is currently capped at $20 million annually and provides a credit equal to 25% of qualified rehabilitation expenditures for certified historic buildings that are used for income-producing or residential purposes. There's also a credit equal to 10% of qualified rehabilitation expenditures for pre-1936 non-historic buildings that are used for income-producing purposes. Now, under current law, the last calendar year of the program was 2015, but the proposals would extend it to 2022. Now, the bills keep the annual cap and project cap the same as the existing program. Commercial projects are limited to a reservation of $5 million, and residential projects are limited to a reservation of $50,000 in tax credits. However, historic preservation advocates are concerned over a recent amendment to the House bill that would allow the credit to be suspended when the budget is prorated or level-funded. If that were to happen, then the credits would be suspended and carried over for the calendar year. Now, this amendment would create a lot of uncertainty within the program, and it may make the program less attractive to developers and investors alike due to the increased risk and the lack of reliability as to when the credit would be able to be claimed. Now, Senate Bill 230 is pending committee action, and House Bill 62 has been read a second time in the House. I'll be sure to provide future updates to these bills right here on Tax Credit Tuesday. If you would like to view the bills, go to www.historictaxcredits.com. In renewable energy tax credit news, Senator Edward Markey from Massachusetts said last week that he plans to introduce legislation to extend the federal investment tax credit through 2025. Markey, a Democrat, cited the benefit to offshore wind farm development. The United States currently has no operational offshore wind installations, but the first one is under construction in Rhode Island. 
the facility is scheduled to open late this year. As you know, Congress extended the availability of the investment tax credit for wind developments for five years, last December. That's a 30% credit for the cost of developing wind energy renewable energy properties. However, the extension included a gradual phase-down that drops it to 20% per year starting in 2017 until it expires in the year 2020. Markets legislation would presumably maintain the 30% level through the year 2025. He made the announcement while speaking at the U.S. Offshore Wind Leadership Conference in Boston. He told the attendees that offshore wind is poised to take off in the United States and that the extension of the investment tax credit would assure it. At the time of this recording, Markey hadn't yet introduced this legislation. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. I invite you to join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. Before we end, I'd like to announce that Novigrad & Company is hosting a free 30-minute webinar this week on amended low-income housing tax credit utility allowance sub-metering regulations. As you know, the IRS and Treasury Department this month amended utility allowance regulations for low-income housing tax credit properties. To learn more, register for the free webinar at www.novaco.com. The webinar will be this Thursday, March 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. Also this week, I'm speaking about affordable housing at Ballard Spar and CSG Advisors Western Housing Conference in San Francisco. I do hope to see you there. The conference is this Friday. Send me a tweet if you're planning to attend. And that's it for now. This is Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratik and Company, LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.